As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, listeners. Forrest and I planned ahead in a lot of ways for the possibility of this show being part two of part two, but one thing we overlooked was recording its own intro. So I'm slapping this one down today on the release day just to get the show posted for you as soon as possible since he's tied up at work. I want to quickly cover two things. A lot of you have been supporting us on our Patreon page, and we're thrilled. We cannot thank you enough. I've been a little behind on reward fulfillment there, a lot behind actually, but I'm hoping to catch up as soon as this show is posted, so thank you for your patience. As we mentioned, all of our Patreon supporters are going to get dibs on the full interview with Professor Abbott, and those at the $3 and above level will have access to the transcript of the interview created by Sarah Bouvier and proofed by Dr. Abbott himself. Additionally, our show is really growing. We're finally starting to line up some real sponsorships, which is outstanding news. The combination of support from patrons and sponsors will get us much closer to our goal of making this our full-time gig and producing tighter shows more often. This particular episode doesn't have a sponsorship in it, but our future ones may have one or even two. No one likes commercials, I should know. I cut them for almost 20 years, but conversely, creative content takes time, money, and effort, and on a show like ours, more effort than you can imagine. We wouldn't even be where we are now if we didn't have the astonishing league of astonishing volunteers whom we are so grateful for. But when the time comes for ads to start being a part of our show, do us a favor. If we're talking about something you're going to buy anyway, please go out of your way to do it through our sponsors and any links we may provide, because that allows them to track responses and also give you deals. If we can show our sponsor that our listeners are engaged and interested in their products, we can get more of them. And if we get more of them, we get to keep doing the show and we get to do it better. Tonight's show is dedicated to our small but fervent group of Latvian and Baltic listeners. We're thrilled to have your ears. Not literally, of course, the Cold War is over, but we mean we're glad that you listen. And to our comrade in the hospital, we hope you get well soon. Finally, tonight's episode has a bit of a ringer at the end of it. By all means, feel free to give it a shout out on social media if you're so inclined, but please don't spoil it for people who haven't listened yet. And please be respectful, as we know you will be, of all persons involved in the mystery of the Summerton Man. I'm going to have to do the quote myself tonight since Forrest can't get into our studio today. But in spite of that, prepare to enjoy The Summerton Man Part 2B, which will pick up exactly where 2A left off. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is going to still be me. Ah, make the most of what we yet may spend before we too into the dust descend. Dust into dust and under dust to lie. Sans wine, sans song, sans singer, and sans end. 
Quatrain 23 from Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Join us tonight for the second half of part two of our series on Tamam Shud, the mystery of the Somerton Man. So we get to the most mysterious clue of all at this point, the rolled up piece of paper in the wasteland, which we mentioned in part one, and it's a big part of this case. And, and, and this one clue kind of reframes this case. Without this, there's some mystery to it, but it's a more conventional John Doe case with a few twists and turns. With this, this little piece of paper, it takes on an entirely new dimension. It, it was tucked into his waistline, tightly rolled up, hidden, foreign language to his person as well as the country he was found in, connected to a specific translation of a 12th century book of poetry. It's, it's fascinating. Well, I'm very much interested in hearing Professor Abbott's take on this. Let's get to that. We'll start with him teaching me how to pronounce it correctly, which I think you already sussed out for us. <laughs> I, I must have said it yeah. wrong because he jumped in with an explanation of the pronunciation. Um, here it is. Just a quick distraction here. I've spoken to students from Iran to find out how to correctly pronounce this because it's a Persian word. They told me you should pronounce it Tamam Shud. Okay, Tamam Shud. So what happened is the police had came to a dead end with this identifying this guy. So the coroner at the time asked a professor at Adelaide University, a guy called Professor John Cleland, who was a pathologist, to just go over everything, take a look at the dead body, go through all the guy's possessions, and just see if he could find anything that had been missed that might give a clue. And so Cleland agreed to do this, and he very methodically went through everything. He was the one that actually took out every item of clothing, and then he, he, got, he got somebody who was about the same size as the Somerton man, dressed the guy up in the guy's clothes that were in the suitcase and dressed the guy up in the clothes that the guy was wearing when he was dead to determine that they were all the correct size within reason. Right. And so that was interesting that he did that to that level of detail. And so this was another check to check that the suitcase really did belong to the dead guy. Then he went through all the clothing and articles very carefully and recorded things about them. And then when he came to the guy's trousers that he was wearing, he found inside the fob pocket of the trousers a little piece, tiny piece of paper rolled up that the police had missed. In America, do you say fob pocket? Is that the correct word you use? It's, do you say? Yeah, or a watch pocket, maybe? Or uh, yeah, yeah, watch pocket. Yes. Yeah, we say fob pocket. Okay, so it's like a little watch pocket. We found a little tiny piece of paper all scrunched up in there. And I'm told that he found it very difficult to get this piece of paper out of there. He had to use tweezers and get it out unrolled this piece of paper and it said tamam should it wasn't in handwriting it was printed on this tiny piece of paper and so it had the appearance that it had been torn out of a book so he showed this to the cops it was then advertised in the newspaper the next day the newspaper basically said does anyone know what book has these words in it what does it mean so eventually somebody came forward and said yep this is from the rubaiyat of omar khayyam this is where these words come from so then the question is which 
edition of the and which book in particular so the cops went scouring around different bookshops libraries to see if they could find a book where somebody had torn out the back page because these words are in the back page of the rubaiyat and the meaning is it means finished in the past tense and so it's the end of the book so it's like trying to say the end because it's at the end so it's a nice little touch putting it in the original language because the rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam that we have today is translated from the original Persian that it was written in. But they left that little bit in just as a kind of cute touch. Then what happened was the inquest, and they determined that they could not find the cause of death of this guy or what even his name was, so then they buried him. And then because of the increased publicity around the inquest and the talking of this Tamam Shud, somebody came forward. They'd seen the newspaper article and they said, hey, I've got a book with the back page torn out, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So this guy turns up at the police station, hands it in, and says, here you go. And they said, where did you get this from? And they said, oh, I just found it in my car one day, uh, six months ago, and it's just been lying there in my car. I didn't know what to do with it. Apparently the story is he thought it was belonged to his brother-in-law, but then his brother-in-law thought it belonged to him. And so it just got left there, each of them thinking that it belonged to each other and they did nothing about it. And lo and behold, indeed, back page was torn where this little piece of paper should have been. It doesn't appear the tear marks exactly match up because the little piece of paper is smaller than the hole that was left behind. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that. I thought it was more of an exact match. But what they did is they took it to a paper specialist who looked at it very closely through a magnifier and looked at the texture of the paper and the weight of it. And the expert determined that it was exactly the same type of paper and same texture, etc. So they were convinced that this actually had come from that book. Now, that actual book has been lost by the police. We don't have that exact copy anymore. The book had some phone numbers in the back, as well as some mysterious letters. A policeman by the name of Errol Canny was sent out to interview a young lady who one of the phone numbers belonged to. And the police didn't release her identity, but dubbed her Justin. So they called her Justin. And so he went to interview Justin, and Justin claimed that she didn't know anything about this man and had no idea why he had her phone number in the back of his book. So when I interviewed cops to find out what had happened to this book, why it doesn't exist anymore, one offered the hypothesis that Errol Canny was such a dedicated cop that he would have taken this book with him home to study it, and he was just the sort of cop that would have accidentally left it at home and forgot to bring it back. <laughs> so excited with this bit of information, I contacted Errol's family, who is still alive, to find out what happened to Errol's possessions when he died. And they told me that Errol had an absolute gold mine of boxes and boxes of old stuff from all his cases. Apparently, he was a hoarder. He hoarded everything. Oh, wow. 
and he had tons of stuff in his garden shed. And so this makes sense. Uh, this other cop that said that Errol has got the book now made sense because their family confirmed that Errol was indeed a hoarder. And he had hoarded tons of stuff, and it was magnificent. And they had no idea if he had this particular book or not because it was in the garden shed. And when Errol died, Errol's wife burnt the lot. <gasps> oh. So it was very sad. <laughs> oh, my God. So we don't know what will happen to this book, but when you put all the little pieces together, it does seem that this is probably the most likely scenario, that it was in er- Errol Canny's collection and that his wife Burnt. destroyed everything after his death. Oh. So that's a, that's a very sad thing. So what I've done is we found it very hard to find any other copy of this book. It seemed to be quite unusual and rare. It was published by a publisher called Whitcomb and Tombs, and they published many editions of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and I tried to find at least one that looks like the photograph we have of it, that's published in the newspapers and we couldn't find it initially. And so what I did is I did a kind of a call to the world on Facebook. We once had a Facebook page that asked people to search for this and a guy by the name of Jason Wells in New York found a very close copy. Oh, And so I call this the Wells copy after Jason Wells. And it is very close to all the photos we have of the book, uh, any photographic evidence, because we have a photo of the front cover, what it's supposed to look like, and we also have a press photo of the last page with the hole torn out of the page. And that matches Jason Wells' copy quite well. And also we have a photo of the code that was written on the back of the book and some borders that are around the edge of that photograph seem to match the the book as well. So there's a number of factors that suggest Jason has come from New York, has come up with the correct copy, also published by Whitcomb and Tombs, so everything matches. There's one slight thing that's not quite right about Jason's copy that he sent us is that the Tamam Shud bit of paper that actually still exists today, we still have it, that's the only thing that hasn't been thrown out, is on bleached white paper, whereas Jason Wells's copy from New York is on slightly colored paper. So that's the only difference. I had read uh, in my research uh, to get ready to speak with you that there were false reprints because the book yes. was so popular, would you speculate that one of one of the copies was maybe not an authentic copy? That could be a possibility. So, yeah. So I actually got this information by talking to the State Library in New York on one of my visits to New York. I talked to the library experts there about different editions of the Rubaiyat. And they said in those days there were a lot of what are called false imprints. That's the technical word for it. Right. And what that means is is like today, you know, like you have a rip-off Versace handbag or a, a rip-off Gucci pair of shoes or whatever sure. that ladies walk around with. In those days, they had rip-off books because books were quite expensive back in the 40s. And so there were a lot of backyard publishers that made kind of exact or more or less exact copies of the real publisher's book 
and sold it off at a cheaper price. And so this sort of thing did go on in those days. And it could be that the Somerton man had a cheap rip-off version of the real thing that was published by Whitcomb and Tombs, and that's why we can't find uh, a Whitcomb and Tombs written on the bleached white paper. We can only find it on colored paper. But what we have is close enough to the real thing that we can actually see that it's original, what its original size is. And this is quite remarkable because if anyone has not seen it, uh, you wouldn't appreciate that it's actually a very, very tiny pocketbook. And it's small enough to fit inside a jacket pocket. So it looks like it's the kind of thing the guy would have walked around carrying in his jacket pocket. So it's a really, really tiny copy. And then when you look at the uh, press photos of the front cover of the book, you notice that the corners of the book are quite worn. And this explains it. This is what would happen if you pull the book in and out of a jacket pocket. It would The corner would get worn. It kind of all hangs together. It makes sense. So it was very interesting to see that copy in, in its real-life form for that purpose. And it seemed that it had a removable dust cover, a removable jacket, which was slightly bigger than the rest of the book, and that's why the corners can get worn very easily. So, yes, that's the book. And one thing we'd like to put out to your listeners is if anyone can still find another copy of a Whitcomb, or purportedly Whitcomb and Tombs Rubaiyat, pocket size that's actually really on bleached white paper we would love to hear from you well, absolutely we and we'll put that out there because maybe maybe somebody will find some to this day we still have not found one on bleached white paper and if we could find one maybe that might give us a clue as to the origin is the wells copy does it indicate what edition it is whitcomb and tombs had fancy names for their edition for their series of editions, and they called it the Courage and Friendship series. So as far as we can determine, that's around 1941-1942. They didn't actually take care and actually publish the date inside the cover. So we can only find that out after the fact by doing other research that it's around the early 40s. Well, there you go. Another instance of possibly important facts and clues being destroyed in yeah. a case. Yeah. yeah. It's tragic. Well, it's like anything else we've covered before here. Some things go away and you'll never get them back. And it's just, it adds to the mystery. It adds more questions. Like Lowell Bastard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happened to that, huh? Uh, James Dean's car. Yeah. Somewhere out there. Action. Well, there you go. Someone do a show on it's, it. Well, it's somewhere. That's the thing. In this case, no, it's ashes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of things were burnt up, and maybe they weren't important. We can't tell, but you'll never get that chance to ask and analyze it. Also, you may not think it's important to get an exact copy of a book, but I'm just going to hint here that if it's a code, then it's definitely important that you have the same exact copy because you want all the same words on all the same pages between two different copies. Yeah, and, and this is the thing about Abbott and how he, as we've mentioned, he first got serious about this investigation was in 2007, he wanted to put his students on it. And in terms of, of breaking this code, he's knowledgeable in complex systems and probability theory. And as near as I can tell, he wanted to take an analytical look at the handwritten code that was in the back of the Rubaiyat found in the car. Now, I'm sure it was an intriguing challenge. 
and considering that many had tried and failed to break the code, including governments, professional cryptographers, and untold numbers of amateurs who are working on it to this day, these people all couldn't get to the bottom of it. So he's like, hey, I've got students. (laughs) No, it's a great exercise. It is a great exercise. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in part three, but they've successfully eliminated... I think, 40 different types of ciphers, and they keep going. They've also proven that it is highly unlikely that it is just random letters. Oh, really? Yes. So we'll get into all that later. Well, dang, because that's my huge theory. Is <laughs> it's just <laughs> No, I briefly, we'll talk about this in more depth, or I will. Yeah. But it's funny because sometimes I write with fountain pens. They write very smoothly. But just to get it going, I'll just write a string of nonsense letters and numbers. Oh, that's nice. And well, if somebody have found a feather, that, a big feather on it. Yes, exactly. Do or you to get wear a, like a, one of those plate collar things, you know, around your neck when you're doing it? Francis Bacon, you mean? Yeah, that well, kind worked of, you know, for him. I always think of the black yeah. adder. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, my point being is that much like Grofaz, it's meaningless. I'm getting a pen started or a ballpoint pen. You know what you would do that? I used to write on the bottom of my shoe to get it going. Yeah. Well, if I'm writing random letters or usually it's squiggles, but like I'm saying, it's like, oh, my God, we found letters on the bottom of his shoe. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. Right. But, no, this is very interesting, though, that they've determined that there is some kind of pattern. They're just not sure. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Actually, I talked to him about it here. He explains it really well. I wasn't so much going to try and break it. I I just wanted to know what it was and what it isn't. I was just trying to find out, you know, is this actually really a code or is it just a shopping list of letters of first words and things like that? I was was thinking uh, maybe with a bit of statistical analysis, we could just shed a little bit of light on it. Right. And so you, some of your students worked on that for a while. Was it more than one set of students? Yes, there's several sets of students. I mean, I still have some working on it this year, too. Okay. (laughs) And our conclusion so far is we believe it's just simply the first letters of words. Just a simple memory aid of some kind. Yeah. What's intriguing is it's four lines. And that's the same as the verses that are, uh, of the poetry. So one wonders if the guy was just trying to pen his own verse. Interesting. And remember. So it may be nothing, nothing nefarious at all. I had noticed in some of your interviews that you seem to not necessarily subscribe to the sort of the idea of him being a spy or this all being connected to spying somehow and the Hollywood end of it. And I, I just wanted to let you know, we are calling essentially from Hollywood. It's about 10 minutes from where we're sitting. <laughs> but, oh, okay. You're, you're in LA, are you? Yes, we are. So I have to ask you about wh- what your take on the spy on the spy aspects of it. When you think about the American aspects of the material that was on him and the Rubaiyat and the code, and when you take it all together, you seem to be indicating, well, I think this is probably a coincidence. Maybe it was a simple memory aid or that sort of thing, or maybe he was American. But how do you feel about the the spy side of things? Because one of the things that, that my co-host pointed out when we were talking a few minutes ago is like, for instance, the insulated screwdriver, it's a, it's a good tool for working with radio equipment and, you know, why the sharpened scissors, these are maybe simple weapons, that sort of thing. What is your take on on those aspects of the case? I hate to kind of be unromantic about the spy thing, but I just, there is no evidence for it. It, It's appealing. It makes a great story. But uh, when you look into the details of the case, there really is nothing really there to support it 
the letters in the back of the book come in if that's a spy thing as completely unprofessional. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And the thing about a spy hypothesis is when you're trying to crack a case logically and scientifically, you kind of put that kind of hypothesis last because anything can be explained by a spy hypothesis. Do you know what I mean? Right. Uh, if any... You know, if anything mysterious happens uh, which has unexplained aspects to it, you can say, oh, well, that was a spy thing because spies do funny things and have lots of resources to do completely strange things, so it must be a spy thing. So you can explain any strange phenomena um, by invoking uh, a deus ex machina called a spy. So... You know, I, I like to put that on the end of the list and cross off other things first before I get to that. I understand. That's just my position. Okay, breaking in here for a second. I, you know what I wanted to talk about here, because this made me think about this. There, there's this great Salon.com article called Why People Believe in Conspiracy Theories. It's by Alex Seitzwald, and we have a copy of it in our files, and I always come back to it. Yeah, well, it's a part of human nature, isn't it? It is, and, and it's, it's super interesting, and there's a lot of stuff online about why people believe in conspiracy theories. Well, we're trained to see patterns. Yeah. We're not really trained, but like that's in our, it's in our blood for humans to make connections to see patterns as a survival mechanism. And that's exactly what it talks about. And here's the other funny thing about this article, which I didn't know when I was thinking, oh, I want to go back and find that article. Alex, the author, interviews a cognitive scientist from the University of Western Australia. Really? So, yeah, oh, so this go. whole thing's coming out of Australia. That's what... <laughs> anyway, yeah. the scientist's name is Stefan Lewandowski. And here are some of the points he makes. Conspiracies help control freaks frame acts of randomness, especially ones that can wreck one's life and, and that scare them to death. And everybody knows this feeling. Wait, wait I don't understand it. And it really comes down to, it's kind of comical, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. I do it myself. It comes sure. down to, wait, could that happen to me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. So, I mean, here's a quote from the article that I love. A conspiracy theory is immune to evidence. And that can pretty well serve as the definition of one. If you reject evidence or reinterpret the evidence to be confirmation of your theory, or you ignore mountains of evidence to focus on just one thing, you're probably a conspiracy theorist. We call that a self-sealing nature of reasoning. And here's another quote that I want to take from it. The crucial difference between having a preconceived notion – we all do that, of course – and conspiratorial thinking is when you get into that self-sealing reasoning and ignore every piece of evidence that is pointing the other way, when you're starting to broaden the circle of conspirators, and when your skepticism gets to be nihilistic, when you believe absolutely nothing that the government or the media is saying, that's when you've crossed the line. Now – my my favorite thing about this quote is that if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can look at that statement and see a rational point of view that states that if you're ignoring evidence contrary to your point of view, then you're probably a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. Conversely, as someone who I think straddles the line because I know there are real conspiracies, and I, but I think they're few and far between, but I can also look at that and say, well, he said, when you believe absolutely nothing that the government or the media is saying, that's when you've crossed the line. I mean, come on. The government and the media are in on it, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. well, of course they're in on it. Yes. Well, no, that fuels the theory. It's self-sealing. It all wraps up nicely into a bow. Again, I think the difference between a healthy skeptic and somebody who's a debunker, that's kind of the flip-flop, is that you don't believe anything's possible. 
because I believe deep down, and this is just my own theory, it scares you somehow that there are things that could happen that are unexplainable beyond the veil, beyond the thin place that you cannot control. There are things that look at us and touch us and try and strangle us in the night and wear hats in our doorways that should not be there. And grin from ear to ear. And gr- Exactly. And what is that? Well, there's no explanation. And that's unsettling to a lot of people. So they choose none of that's real. Not possible. There are no ghosts, blah, blah, blah. Nothing, nothing like that ever yeah, happens. Yeah, they should get mad about it. Well, no, because that's the thing. It's a, and I can't fault you. That's just what your makeup is. In this case, with the conspiracy theories, especially this case, it's also the more interesting theory rather than like, well, he hit his head. <laughs> he tried well, to sit down. It, he knocked himself out. And suffocated. He's dead. Yeah, well, it, it, and that comes around. And like, I will say this, and we will talk about this in part three when we cover all the theories for this one. When you're looking at all the wild theories, there's always that one final one that you have to keep on the list if you're going to be a rational person. Aliens? No. No. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Maybe maybe it should be at the top of the list instead of at the end, but putting it at the end is more entertaining. And that really is just Occam's razor. The Ah. the banal, simple explanation. It is the most likely. It is the most likely. It's, you know, and we're we're, going to talk about that. So Okay, one thing I want to add, though. Yeah. No matter what you believe, and again, I we always say that Occam's razor, I think it's a great place to start. You have to start there. Yeah. You start from the simple, and you expand out. Yeah. I agree. Okay. So next, you guys spoke about Robin Thompson, right? Yeah, and we should revisit who Robin was, I think. Also, I want to make it clear, you're going to hear us talking about Justin, and you're also going to hear us refer to Justin as Joe. Just to be clear, let's get all these names straight. These people are all the one person. It is the nurse. And her name was Jessica Harkness, her maiden name. And yeah. later, Jessica or Joe, she changed her name to Joe when she married George Prosper Thompson. So she became Joe Thompson at that point. Justin is how she signed her name for the inscription in the copy of the Rubaiyat that she gave Alfred Boxall. So if you I'm he- sorry, and that got picked up by the papers, I believe, right? Justin? Yes, yes yeah. it did. Okay. And so if you hear us say Justin, or we might say Joe, it's just J-O, it's not a man, there is no Joe in this story besides her. So it's it's Joe was her nickname after she married Prosper Thompson. So I just, I just want to make that clear anyway, real quick. Yeah. But uh, anyway, in, in part one, we spoke about how the copy of the Rubaiyat that was found in the back of that car that matched the Tamam Shud piece of paper had not only the code in the back of it, but a local phone number. And that phone number led to the person Scott was just talking about, Jessica, or Justin, or Joe, a nurse living very close to where TSM was found. And for years and years, she was kept anonymous out of respect for her by the police department in an effort to protect her privacy. That's right. And she had a little boy named Robin who looks remarkably... Like the Summerton man. (laughs) Yes, he does. And not only does he look like TSM, he has, as we mentioned in part one, not one, but two extremely rare genetic conditions, uh, the combination of which TSM also had. Hypodontia, which is the absence of both lateral incisors, and the appearance of the ear having the larger Simba than the cavum, which occurs in about 1% of people. So Justin, or Joe, was contacted by police when they found her number in the back of the Rubaiyat that was found in the back of this parked car on Jetty Road in Glen Elg, just north of Somerton Beach. It was a Hillman Minx, actually. I think it was probably a Mark I or a Mark II. <laughs> 
but we don't know for sure. And nobody cares. I know. I'm a, I'm a car guy. What <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I do because uh, uh, mostly because of the Road Warrior. But yeah, yes. okay, nice. there you go. <laughs> so this anonymous guy finds a copy of the Rubaiyat in his car that his brother had found on the floorboard in the back, and thinking it was his brother's. Put it in the glove compartment, and this copy matched TSM's piece of paper, and at the back of the book, there was a local phone number. That's right. The cops called that number and found Justin on the other end of the line. Now, Boxall, Alfred Boxall, knew her as Justin, so that's what we'll call her while we're discussing this part of the story. But they went to see her, and when she was questioned about the Rubaiyat, she recalled a story of how she gave a copy of it. Well, actually, first she said... She did recognize the book, and yeah. there was like this miscommunication, which you're going to hear about from Professor Abbott. But she then went on to say that she actually had given a copy of it to a soldier a few years ago. And when pressed for his name, she eventually told the detectives that it was Alfred Boxall. Now, it's important to note here that part of the reason that they likely kept her anonymous or gave her the nickname Justin, which we later find out is how she inscribed the book to Boxall, is because she at the time was already in a relationship of one kind or another yeah. with George Thompson. Right. And she didn't necessarily want him to know that she had had any interaction with Boxall. Even well, though it was, you know, it was a prior thing, but yeah, you know, and also it's going to be in the papers because this case is so famous, but, right? And know. think about it back then; it was pretty scandalous. Yeah, I mean, you know, people were, were a lot more uptight about. Well, that and Boxall was married. Well, yes, exactly. So, so, no, out of respect, I mean, we find it strange now, but back then they gave her the benefit of the doubt. Now, Alfred Boxall, just six years prior to TSM being found, had signed up to defend Australia in the war. Japan had been hammering them, and people were concerned that an invasion of Australia by Japan was imminent. In fact, uh, from 1942 to 43, Australia was attacked by the Japanese numerous times, uh, mostly in air raids, but also in some midget submarine attacks on Sydney Harbor. That's right. If you look online, you can find them dredging up midget number 14, or as they now like to be referred to, little submarine number 14, on the day after the attack. June 1st, 1942. That was a joke. You didn't even laugh at it. <laughs> was it bad? Was wait, it, wait. It was too obtuse. Uh, in fact, if, it's uh, not midget no, submarine. I'm just it's looking. little submarine. All right, forget it. Forget it. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> somewhere laughed. I know little, you laughed. No, there. Please send me an email and tell me you laughed. You have to say little person submarine. <sighs> okay. Okay. All right. And then I got... I'm sorry. I'm... De- <laughs> <laughs> it's getting it late. Yeah, it didn't, did not click. Moving okay, on. well, according to Feltus's book, The Unknown Man, Boxall had been assigned to the 2nd 1st North Australia Observation Unit, which was a light horse-mounted unit that was supposed to monitor Japanese activity in northern Australia, as in an invasion. Many consider it the first recon unit of the Australian Army. Well, he was transferred out of it in 1943, and it was disbanded in early 1945 because of the reduced threat of Japan invading. So Boxhall then went to the Water Transport Wing, which was what we in the States would call a division in charge of amphibious craft. Now, during his time with the recon unit, these guys rode around on horses, creeping along the northern shore, looking for Japanese invasions that might be starting. This technically is an intelligence operation. So now these guys in this unit and a few other soldiers would sometimes hang out at a hotel known as the Clifton Gardens Hotel on the north shore of Sydney Harbor. According to Feltus, it wasn't a major scene, but it was busy enough, and it sold booze to soldiers after 6 p.m., which was illegal, but the hotel and the authorities turned a blind eye as long as things stayed under control. Boxhall apparently spent a fair amount of time there with some of his buddies and obviously would from time to time meet and talk to civilians in there as well. 
You know, this part is tricky. There's not a whole lot of information about this, and we're not implying any impropriety here. But Boxall reported that this is where he met Justin. According to Feltis, Justin and Boxall had platonic conversations about their families over a few drinks, no doubt. Right, so we'll let that lie. <laughs> but these <laughs> yeah. two adults met and conversed enough times in this hotel pub, I guess, that, that when Justin got word that Alfred was to be shipped out or transferred... She felt compelled to give him an inscribed copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. That she did, inscribed with Quatrain 70 of the 1859 Fitzgerald translation of the Rubaiyat. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before. I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. Justin. Wow. Okay, so that seems like it might be replete with interpretations, which we are underqualified to expand on. Enter our poet at large, Robert Crutt. He himself is a published poet with two books out, one called This is the Ocean by Bonafide Books. It is the winner of the 2012 Melissa Lenitis Gregory Poetry Prize, as well as his other book, The Spider Sermons, which came out in 2009. His poems have appeared in numerous journals, both in print and online. He teaches at UC Santa Barbara in the writing program and College of Creative Studies, where he has been nominated for the university's Distinguished Teaching Award four times. Yeah, you're, you're pretty highbrow. Well, they're definitely higherbrow than It was me. an honor to be nominated, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> as they say. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I've listened to the podcast almost since the beginning, so you know I'm, I'm thrilled to get to do anything with you guys. So. Oh, well, we're glad to have you. So the reason I wanted to bring you in was when we got to this part of the Somerton Man case where we found out that he had this piece of paper in his pocket that said Tamam Shud on it and that it was connected to the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Am I saying that right? You Rubaiyat? are saying that right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was so intrigued with it because one of the things was, first of all, I had this sense memory of being a kid at my mom's house and remembering that she had a copy of that mm-hmm. book. It was a very small little, like, almost like a pocket copy. Sure. And I, I remember thinking, what the hell is it? Look at the name of this. What is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And I remember looking at it and being a kid and being dismissive of poetry, as all children probably are in the early sure. days. I was just like, oh, you know, but there was something about it mm-hmm. that struck me enough that when it came up in this story, when I was doing research on this, I had suddenly visualized it sitting right in front of me, this mm-hmm. book. And I was actually going to ask her if she still had it, but she's moved so many times I don't know. But the the point is, I remember thinking, oh, well, this was enough of a staple that it was in my mom's house. Mm-hmm. And I never would have dreamed that it would be tied to this case in this way. And then the very next thing I thought was, I know absolutely nothing about poetry. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So then I thought, I know a poet. Mm-hmm. And here you are. Well, you know, I, I find it so interesting. And when we emailed, you had mentioned that your your mom had the copy of it. And it is one of those books that is so well known and is so popular. And I think a lot of people have that same kind of memory with the book where I had I have it too. My parents had a copy of it in the house. And that doesn't happen with poetry very often. Like it's the kind of book that pops up in a lot of houses that maybe don't have a lot of poetry. Right. It's a very popular book. In the time period that we're talking about with this case, it was particularly popular, which would explain why, not to date us too much, but our parents having copies of it right. would make sense. And and I think, you know, the people make the analogy all the time with poetry that poetry is like the jazz section of the record store. 
It's not super popular. There's the certain diehard people who are really into it. It's incredibly important. I say that with some self-interest, but it's incredibly important <laughs> for the culture at large that it exists, but it's not the sort of thing that people are rushing out to buy. But like with jazz, say, if you're going to have a jazz record, a lot of houses will have like Miles Davis kind of blue in the house. And so with poetry, if you're going to have a book of poetry and you don't have any others, like this is a good chance this is the book that's on the shelf, you know, and you can think about it in terms of like with American poetry, like maybe the way somebody might have leaves of grass in the house or like Robert Frost collected poems, like right. these books that everybody can kind of connect to. And people also can buy and put on their bookshelves and pretend that they've read them. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've read all of Leaves of Grass, every edition, you know, like that sort of thing. And, yeah. And I think that's it. This is one of those books that it's it's a healthy addition to a lot of people's bookcases. But I think it's so popular because A, the 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 themes of it and the messages that are on the surface and, and maybe beneath the surface as well, but particularly the sort of kind of carpe diem, seize the day sort of stuff. It's It's the sort of message that Everybody can get behind, whether you're somebody who's well-versed in poetry or you're someone who doesn't read poetry at all. And because it's got this kind of catch-all theme, it's like a Rorschach test in a lot of ways, where a book um, or a collection of poems, and this this is a collection of the Rubai, so it's it's a series of them. Rubais? Ru- Rubai. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then the plural is the Rubaiyat. So like oh, when you're okay. saying like the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, it's his collection of Rubai. Oh, okay. And so, and that's of, is that a particular form? It is a particular form. So we're looking at quatrains. So we're looking at four lines. In many cases, there's a rhyme scheme of A A B A, and often you'll see at least one line is kind of divided in half. So it's a collection, and kind of similar the way I always think about it is like a haiku. You know, there's a very specific sort of structure to it, and people will present the haiku of. Dufu or something like that. And this is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So it's the collection of all those. I know a haiku. Do you want to hear the one? I, know? I would love to hear it. Yeah. <clears throat> Haikus are easy, but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. That's perfect. There you go. <laughs> done and done. You have a poetry expert here and you didn't even know it. I get that off a Threadless t-shirt. So That's pretty good. Yeah, thanks. I have a whole collection of haiku I wrote in third grade that mostly have to do with Indiana Jones and Star Wars. So wow, that maybe sounds like not, awesome haiku. It was really pretty wonderful. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's somewhere in a file cabinet somewhere. But um, <laughs> And it's, so it's that same sort of approach where there's the series of them and they're pieced together. And the, the, the addition that, that we probably grew up or we grew up with that was in our house is the, the addition that you see discussed in this case, which was the one that became very popular in Western culture, which was the uh, Fitzgerald translation. Yes. But in that, there's a certain amount, but there's hundreds and hundreds of, of actual rubai written by Kayam. But there's the one that we would discuss in terms of this case, because that's the one that they would have been reading is the Fitzgerald translation. Right. And I, when I first started digging into this, I was I thought I was dealing with something super lengthy, like mm-hmm. the Odyssey or yeah. something. And then I found a copy online and downloaded it. I was like, oh, this is only 19 pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I enjoyed it. And then I started looking at the quotes from his other work. Mm-hmm. And I, he's really amazing, Yeah, I, sure. I thought, anyway. But again, I'm looking at the translations. So how do you know how it really read in Persian? 
You know? Well, I mean, the key is to be able to read it in the original language. That's the best way, but that's difficult for, for most of us. You know, when we get into to translation, it's sticky business, you know, because it's, it's, it's one of the aspects of literature where you're never going to have an exact translation. Because when you're looking at translations, you're looking at particular phrasings that don't come across the same way, or sometimes even words that don't come across the same way. Sometimes, particularly in, in terms of a piece like this, you're looking at larger kind of socio-political, colonial sorts of issues as far as like taking ownership and saying, I'm going to translate this and make it work for me, as opposed to maybe the culture that it was supposed to be written for, was written for initially. Sure. So that leads into a whole field of discourse beyond just looking at at the poem on itself. So it gets into a tricky area sometimes, you know. Before we talk about this, I see that you've brought a marked edition. Do you have some quatrains you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, in a moment, I'll talk about the themes and, and uh, we'll go from there. But just to look at a couple examples, here's two that have to do with the Carpe Diem theme that we're going to explore when we talk about it. The first is the third from the Fitzgerald edition, and as the cock crew, those who stood before the tavern shouted, open the door, you know how little while we have to stay, and once departed may return no more. The 34th quatrain from the Fitzgerald edition, then to this earthen bowl did I adjourn, my lip the secret well of life to learn, and lip to lip it murmured, while you live, drink, for once dead you shall never return. I mean, those are kind of the quintessential carpe diem lines. Poignant. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I've read this a bunch of times, our discussions about this case made me look at things in in sometimes a different light. And I was particularly fascinated by the idea, and maybe it's because of the possible spy angle, but this idea that he's not only writing about seizing the day and and, and life in general, but sometimes about the structures and the, the and you can translate that to governments and religions that are are on us and whether or not those will last and whether or not they're worthy of our respect and, and following them. So there's a couple of lines that I thought were kind of interesting in that regard. The 25th section here in, in the Fitzgerald edition, why all the saints and sages who discussed of the two worlds so learnedly are thrust like foolish prophets forth, their words to scorn are scattered, and their mouths are stopped with dust. Which, yeah, I mean, that's says it all. <laughs> kind of yeah. says it all. Yeah. And then um, I found this one, uh, you found this one, and I found you're finding it particularly interesting, which <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, I guess. But And I think this works particularly well when we think about it in terms of was this spy related, you know, which is uh, the 49th. Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days where destiny with men for pieces plays hither and thither moves and mates and slays and one by one back in the closet lays. I mean, I kind of feel like that could be, I love that. The first lines in a spy movie. Yeah. Yeah. What thematically, let's talk more about the themes. Sure. I mean, what are, I, I felt like when I was, when I was reading it and also reading, like I said, some of his other works, he seemed to be focused on, like you said. Well, one thing you said, which seems to come up all the time, is mm-hmm. just is the seize the day, the carpe mm-hmm. diem aspect of it. Also, he seems to be talk a lot about mortality. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what other themes are present in it? One of the big aspects when you look at a poem like this, and it, this is where I get 
fascinated by it. And then I start to go into a spiral where I'm going back and forth on it is inevitably when you have poems that are focused on this idea of carpe diem and this idea of, of, of seizing the day and, and making the most out of life, it's because the themes come out of the sense of we don't know what's coming next. So there is mortality involved. So the difference here being instead of like resigning yourself to the mortality in a, a sad way saying, look, this is all going to end. So enjoy while you're here. I mean, that's obviously what Carpe Diem is. So there's always this finite nature going on in these poems. But instead of seeing it as a dreaded thing, it's almost like, well, just forget about it. Because wait, nah, that's not right. That's totally wrong. Okay. Because you know the mortality is coming, you want to acknowledge it. Okay. But instead of acknowledging it in a resigned, sad way, acknowledging it in a way that well, if I'm going to go, I'm going to enjoy everything the most I can. And in these poems, in these, uh, in the Rubaiyat, a lot of that has to do with drink the wine, take the cup, you know, or, or give in to this. There's a lot of love in these poems as well. Is there a perception of him being hedonistic? Oh, sure. Of Kayan being hedonistic? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and it's funny because this is where you start to see the back and forth, the push and pull, where you can look at a poem like this, or in any Carpe Diem poem, really, and you can say, oh, it's this really invigorating, like, life is going to end, and we don't know what it means, so make the most out of it, and party, and, and do whatever you want, and that's wonderful. But then there's the flip side that some people look at it and say, yeah, are you just using that as an excuse to party and do whatever you want? You know, like that yeah. sort of that sort of attitude. And I know... When we're looking at the time of this case, certainly there's a lot of people who uh, – scholars, when you, you look through the materials, who say people sometimes use poems like this to justify behavior. Well, everything's going to end. I've got to seize the day. I'm going to go stay out all night or I'm going to go cheat on my wife or I'm going to go do whatever because, well, what does anything mean? Yeah. You know, so you run into that kind of – that duality certainly in, in so it's either a really noble or or kind of evil. Yeah, it could be. Well, exa- <laughs> you know, and it's funny because that's what when I was going through the uh, rereading it and thinking about it, and you know, my attitude personally, and certainly when I, I I write is kind of like, well, you don't know what anything means, so you might as well a try to be a good person, try to enjoy what you're doing, try to embrace everything, blah blah. blah you know, and that's very. You no, know, I don't always do that, but I try for that. But the flip side of that can be, well, if you don't know what's coming up and structures, societal structures are meaningless and, and the powers that be are worthy of deconstruction, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if nothing means anything, why not just do whatever the hell you want? Right. I was teaching just this last week. We were talking about – I mean, and this is a story that – I know it's almost cliche to say I was teaching this in a literature class, but we were doing um, Flannery O'Connor's Good Man is Hard to Find. Sure. Yeah. So you, yeah, so – and – it all comes down to this idea that the serial killer, the misfit in that story, is doing what he's doing because he sees no order in the universe. So you could see no order in the universe and do what's happening in the Rubaiyat, which is drink up, celebrate, or you can say there's no order in the universe. I'm going to murder a family in their, their station wagon in the south for right. no reason. Right. So that's kind of the, the flip side you look at when you, you see poems like this. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I find it very interesting. I mean, it's, and that's why, you know, sometimes people will look at poems like this and think, oh, well, it's all platitudes about like seizing the day and don't feel crushed by society, do what you want. And that's great. And that's good if that's what people are getting out of it. But what makes it last is that there's a level going on beyond that where it's like, well, if you're to accept the fact that we're all going to die, if you do accept the fact that nothing means anything, so why not just 
enjoy yourself. Well, then you also have to accept the fact that you just said nothing means anything and we're all going to die. So where do you go from there? Hopefully you fall on the side of being celebratory about it, but you never know where you're going to go. The phrase tamam shoot Mm -hmm. loosely translates as it has ended, Mm -hmm. the end, it's over, it's finished. How do you think this might connect to this case? I know, I mean, this is a little bit, I'm yeah, sure. putting you on the spot as a detective. What, well, no, I mean, I you think I, about it. If, if the police in Adelaide had hired you and said, mm-hmm. what do you think the significance is of this particular part of this poem being hidden sure. in his clothes? Well, I mean, there's two, there's two, because I have thought about this since we started communicating about it, you know, and I think there's two ways to go. One puts less emphasis on the book itself and more emphasis just on the phrase. Certainly, if it's a murder or something along those lines, just ripping off lines that say it is finished or the last line of a poem and sticking it in somebody's pocket is a pretty blatant – it's like whatever book is laying around, you know, right. that has the right. end on it. You right. Know? But certainly, you know, what I find is that I, there's some importance of this book in the – clearly there's some importance of the book. So I think choosing – that last line from this particular book is a gesture of saying, okay, great. I'm choosing it is finished from this particular book. Therefore, what's happening in the book has some relevance to the case. Now, whether that means it's, you know, there's so many different theories as we've talked about, but does it mean that it's this love affair gone wrong? Does it mean that it's a spy thing gone wrong? Does it mean that it's a serial killer gone wrong? Does it mean he took his own life? There's so many different ways you can go from the themes of the poem on this. So I see it as, okay, we're taking this, it is finished, which speaks unto itself, but from this particular book that has so much weight. And again, it's, it's, I think I used the term kaleidoscopic when we emailed, which is like, there's so many different meanings that you can get out of the book, depending on how you choose to see the case. I mean, I certainly look at the poems that are about seizing the day and think, oh, well, maybe it was an affair. And it's like, I have to seize the day with this affair and it didn't work out. Or if it is a spy thing, there's a lot in the book about not letting the structures of uh, society rule your life or that those are going to go by the wayside. There's a couple of great rubai in here that are about kind of society and, and the people who are in charge turning to dust or having their mouths filled with dust. And it's, if you're on board with this being a spy-related thing, there's certainly some meaning to be found there as well. And I mean, if you're even going, I think you mentioned the possibility of it being a serial killer. There's even lines in here that are kind of about a game and the puzzle pieces and, you know, somebody who maybe I've seen too many movies, but certainly that wouldn't be a far-fetched stretch. Right. And then the other thing is, not to keep rambling on and on, but the other thing that I find very interesting about this particular poem is, you know, there's the code in the back of the book, which... To me, it's clearly a code. That's not gibberish in the back. Right. You know, that's clearly some sort of code. And when you're looking at a poem that has a particular form already built into it and someone who's using some sort of code, I wouldn't be totally surprised to think to find that that code has some sort of connection to the book. I feel like there hasn't been a lot of success in trying to, to break that down. Yeah. But someone who is using codes is clearly going to be interested in a particular form of poetry that's using a form. Right. And here's the interesting thing that I don't know if you know about, but the book's lost. So since then, numerous people have been searching the world for an identical edition, and no one can find it. Amazing. Yeah. And on top of that, there are multiple other editions. There are real reprints, and then there's even fake ones, because as you said, the book was hugely popular Mm -hmm. at this time. And I gather, like you said, dating us, 
with my, with respect to my parents, it must have been popular in the 60s. It, the baby boomers mm. must have been into it because that's oh, yeah. where my parents were at. Who knows? Maybe it has some hippie. Well, like. the, you know, it, well, it, it, you know, it's funny because it does, and I think that's why it's lasted. Is that whether it's you know we're talking Cold War era, but then you've got the beats, a lot of the beats connected to it, and then yeah, you talk about the hippies in the the '60s. You know, Grateful Dead paid homage to this, you know, and, and there's certainly oh they did oh yeah huh? there's um I forget the the piece there's a piece or there's an album cover there's some connection with the dead and I'm I'm blanking on it right now right I can't imagine why my memory would be fuzzy about the grateful dead but there's <laughs> it's it's certainly uh there's some connection and I'm forgetting what it is now Well I know that artistically right the skeleton with the flowers isn't that some of the illustrations that were on some of the original covers of the of the translations it could be it I could be, maybe that's what I'm thinking of You know I'm speculating on that so don't don't quote me on it's, it It's well that's exactly how I feel it's like I started something that I don't exactly have the memory to see through, right. but there is some connection there. And it, and it makes sense. I mean, not to oversimplify an entire generation, but it's, sure. you know, if you think about the, the stereotype of like late sixties and, you know, lot, four, little four line quatrains about drink up, drink up, who knows what's coming next. Yeah. Certainly kind of seems like it fits in with, <laughs> right. you know, what you picture of, of the time frame. So are you aware of the other copies of the Rubaiyat that are related to this case? No. Uh-uh. Okay. So I'll tell you, uh, we're going to be getting to that later, but I'll go ahead and share it with you now and Great. our listeners as well. But uh, the, the first thing that I want to say is uh, regarding those editions, they have found, and I'm going to be talking to Professor Abbott about this, but they have found that in some cases, some publishers were releasing as few as one copy of a particular edition. Wow. This would mean as a possible key for a code, mm-hmm. if, if this story does turn out, and we'll talk about this later too, but going down the spy road and this being related, that it's the ultimate key. Mm-hmm. It's locked in. And especially when you think about the translation and how Fitzgerald may have broken the quatrains down or changed words in it. And if it's a particular edition that only has those words, then that is a key that's as specific as a single key to a lock. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's why they're still looking for a match for that edition. The other copy was given to a man named Alfred Boxall. When they determined that Alfred Boxall had this copy of it also given to him by the same woman. Amazing. I remember reading that online and just thinking, you've got to be kidding me. With right. This. Yeah. And they thought they thought it was maybe related to the... They were disappointed to find that Alfred Boxall was alive and well and still had that copy mm-hmm. inscribed by her. I think you've done a really good job of explaining why it might have been so popular at the time. And and the interesting thing about Kayam is that he wasn't just a poet. He was a mathematician, yeah. a philosopher, mm-hmm. and an astronomer. Yeah. He's like a smart dude. Uh, yeah. That's a good Super way to put smart it. smart dude. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's perfect. <laughs> well, and that goes – and, you know, and that and – that, not to – to bring everything back to the case, but I guess maybe that's what we're here to do, but to bring it back to the case, that's why it's so fascinating to me that say this is some sort of larger scheme that's going on here. You're looking at poetry that can be interpreted a lot of different ways with a lot of different kind of shedding light on a different angles, but it's being written by someone who is not just a poet who's doing all the, the mathematician, all the science work and, and, and the physics and, and all of this goes to an edition of the book that has a code at the end. Yeah. You know, and there's a mystery connected to it. So it 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 all just feels like it falls in place perfectly. Now whether or not this is even a blip on the radar of the person who tore out the piece of paper, who knows? But it it certainly 
fascinating to think about that A, this is poetry involved, and B, it's poetry that can be interpreted so many ways, and C, it's poetry written by someone who has an interest in these sorts of puzzles like mathematics and, and codes and things of that nature. Robert, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. I'm such a fan of the show, and I'm just thrilled to be in here. So thanks so much, Scott. It was great to have you. Okay, so here's a few things you can summarize about Omar himself as a poet. A genius hedonist who writes this amazing book of four-line quatrains. And uh, he's also an astronomer, possibly agnostic. He's questioning uh, the powers that be in the universe. But he writes this book of poetry that can be interpreted at opposite ends of meaning. Maybe that there's no moral code, so you might as well be good and have your own moral code and your own morality, or as Woody Allen says, a poet creates his own moral universe, take that however you may, (laughs) or that there's no code and no one's watching, so you might as well do whatever you want that feels good. Yeah, I mean, that's it, essentially. And you know what's funny? I could have kicked myself, because the one quatrain I should have asked Robert about in the studio, I didn't. Ah, yes, quatrain 70, the inscription from Boxall's copy of the Rubaiyat. What exactly did Justin mean when she wrote that particular quatrain in there for Boxall? Can you recite it again for our listeners' reference? Oh, if I must, sure. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before, I swore. But was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence a pieces tore. Justin. Now, fortunately, I was able to get Robert on the phone about it. I had postulated that that quatrain may reference regret with intended penitence, giving way to repeated temptation and some sort of endless cycle, or is it more specific about the season of spring? I was a bad boy and swore to repent tomorrow, but I was drunk last night, and today it's a beautiful spring day, so screw it. You know, I don't know, but (laughs) here's his response. Okay. Man, this is an incredible quatrain to have inscribed in a gift. It is clearly and absolutely loaded with meaning. Anytime we choose to highlight a particular quote, it is, of course, and this one rings a huge echoing bell. To me, as a reader, your first analysis is right on target. I gave in to temptation, felt regret, swore it off, but now, with the slightest blooming, I can't resist giving in to romance again. The temptation was so great that the simple but beautiful appearance of a rose will tilt the speaker back into that temptation. What's particularly interesting here to me are two items. Number one, for a collection that revels in drink and carpe diem ideas, it is intriguing to see regret mentioned at all. What could this temptation be that makes the speaker feel guilt? In almost all of the lines elsewhere, drinking is literally and figuratively something to celebrate. Similarly, was the speaker drunk from drink? I was loaded and made a huge mistake. From life itself, drink it all in. Or to quote a more modern day poet, drunk in love. Of course, these all have slightly different meanings at the get-go. I made a mistake while drunk, and I know myself well enough to know I will succumb again. Or I truly fell in love, and even though I knew it was wrong, I can't turn away. Number two, I keep reading this as if the temptation is one of a love, sex, lust, romance variety, since it was highlighted by the gift giver. Of course, devoid of that context, it could be any old temptation. When I used to smoke, I would try to quit, which was easy to say in the winter when it was cold and freezing to stand outside and smoke. The minute the weather turned, though, it was tougher. Or I give up sweets, but the day the strawberries are ripe in the spring, I want 45 homemade strawberry shortcakes. So it can really be about how tenuous any resolve can be in the face of temptation. 
But here, it seems obvious to me that it relates to some sort of romantic circumstance. Think of it this way. If you got a copy of a book of poetry from someone and this poem was highlighted for you, how would you read it? There's definitely something going on here. I mean, there's implications there, a lot of them. So it's, it's so intriguing. This, this quatrain, TSM, The Nurse, it's the definition of intrigue. Well, yeah, because as, as I see it, yeah, I, I think I kind of agree with your statement as, as you left it there to him. You swore not to do something, but was I serious when I said it? And then guess what? Yes, nice spring day, and here's this temptation again, and what the heck? I forget all about my promises to myself. But what's interesting is that was it about something that she swore she wouldn't do again, or was it about something that he swore and maybe he just told her about, like, ah, you know what, I swore I wouldn't keep doing this. And she gives it to him as like, here's a nice little passage that sums up, like you said, the cycle of promising yourself one thing and you keep disappointing yourself. So, yeah. But who is it referencing? That's the intrigue, as you mentioned. So anyway, Robert mentions something about Justin possibly being a serial killer. And that was something you had mentioned to him, right? Well, it's, it's one of the myriad theories about this case. What if she was one of those homicidal nurses that we've all seen in the press over the years? The was, angel of death. Yeah, yeah taking type. lives, and maybe she was marking her victims with copies of the Rubaiyat. Wow, wow, that's very um, filmic. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, like, yes, the death card, that kind of thing. Yeah. But generally, I think when that happens, they self-justify it as, hey, look, these people are terminally ill. Uh, well, again, that's one theory about well, and yeah, TSM. And we're going to get into that in okay. part three. Yeah, I'm not, not to jump ahead too yeah. far. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, does it fit? Ask yourself, as well, the listener, does it fit these outlandish profiles and claims because, yeah, like I said, usually that's somebody deep down who knows maybe it's the thrill of killing somebody, and they mask it as like, well, this guy, he's, he's suffering, so I'm going to help him along his way, whether he wanted to or not. Who knows? Yeah. Let's get back to the rest of the interview with Professor Abbott. But before we go on to Boxall and Justin and Quatrain 70 of the Rubaiyat, we, we were talking about Justin or Joe's son, Robin. Right. Talk about the hypodontia again. That's the missing teeth, the missing two lateral incisors. And then he also had the unusual ear shape, which we just mentioned earlier. And Robin is pretty much definitely the son of TSM and Justin, or, or Joe the nurse. And I asked Professor Abbott if he thought that too, and he said he was 99.9% .9 sure that Robin and Joe are related. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, where does Justin come from? Well, I know it, it you know it's I mean, funny the it's name, like, you know I'm talking about yeah, the, the name. name. Yes. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> Not it's where she personally came yeah, from. It's, yeah, it's it's like an it's it's funny to me. It's like a name that a little girl would make up in a schoolyard game. It's not real. It's like this is what I'm going to be today, but uh, Professor Abbott actually had a lot of insight about it. I'm going to play that part now. Yeah. Okay, good. Here's a question I have about Justin. When the police, you said the police dubbed her Justin, but did they? They didn't necessarily come up with that name, right? Because that was how she signed the inscription to Alfred Boxall as well, wasn't it? Yeah, she came up with that name herself. Right. <laughs> so she gave a book to Alfred Boxall, a rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, and signed it Justin. And no one knows why, because everyone I've interviewed that knew her never heard of her ever used that name. I'd read that some of the nurses, she was slight, so the nurses would call her Tina, and it was maybe a combination of Jessica and Tina that she worked with, The people, maybe? Well, I've never had that story confirmed. That's just some blogger who said that. Oh, okay. Uh, so I think the jury's still out on that one. My personal feeling is it's just something she had a one-on-one -on -one with 
Alf Boxall used that name. It probably came up in a, some kind of joke between them, and it, that was just a special name between the two of them. Getting back to the Rubaiyat and the fact that she gave one to Boxall and that the one that was found on the Somerton Man, and then we have the other gentleman whose name escapes me. George Marshall. That's right, folks. A third guy, dead. We're two for three on the dead part here, and he has a copy of the Rubaiyat as well. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Saul Haim Marshall, found dead in Mossman, Sydney, near the water's edge, June 3rd, 1945. A copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, open, next to his body. The suburb of Mossman is between St. Leonard's, where Joe lived at the time, and the aforementioned Clifton Gardens Hotel, at which she frequented the pub, enough to cross paths with Boxall. So here we are, folks, a third man, possibly entirely unrelated. Any connection is circumstantial. But let's look at the circumstances of that circumstantial connect. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, let's let's recap then. <laughs> okay, recap. You recap. Yeah, okay. I, my mouth needs a break. All right. Well, we've got three men, all connected by the Rubaiyat. TSM, dead, torn piece of Rubaiyat, poisoning, not proven, but entirely possible. Alfred Boxhall, alive, inscribed Rubaiyat. From Justin. Not, but not alive anymore, but at no, the no, time, yeah, exactly. not murdered. It's probably what, yeah. I, what we should have said. Okay. And then you have George Marshall, dead, poisoned, Rubaiyat in hand, and found near Justin's house in Sydney and the hospital she worked at. All right. So on the surface, without further information, this is pretty seriously suspect. I mean, especially if you subscribe to the possibility of Joe being a serial killer. But <laughs> when, you get a, when you get a little more information, a different story takes place. Okay, so I want you to keep two things in mind here, though. I know a lot of you have not heard of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, but at the time, it was just one of those popular books, like Chicken Soup for the Soul. A lot of people had it on their bookshelves, whether they read it or not. Okay, so it's not that unusual. Uh, Secondly, keep in mind the source here is a scandal newspaper of its day uh, called The Mirror. And it was a broadsheet paper published from 1921 to 1956. It was actually one of the first newspapers Rupert Murdoch bought in 1955, and then he shut it down the very next year, probably to eliminate competition. But it's it's credited as being the beginning of his empire. Ah, very interesting. Okay. Anyway, they did a story on George Marshall's death on page 16, Saturday, August 25th, 1945, entitled Perth Poet Suicide chose Omar Verse as his epitaph. Some astonishing evidence. Whoa, whoa, that sounds like one of us wrote it. No, no, that's actually from the uh, the headlines, right? Oh, okay. All right, continue. All right, yeah, so All there right. you go. All right, here we go. Some astonishing evidence was given by Samuel Saul Marshall of Perth, formerly of Singapore, brother of 30 years old Joseph Haim Saul Marshall, also known as George Marshall who committed suicide by taking poison in the bush close to the water's edge at Taylor Bay, Sydney, on June 3rd, at the inquest which concluded last week. It's kind of a run-on sentence. You did a good job. Well, (laughs) wait, that was how it was written, Yes, it was. Okay, well. Don't stop now. Oh, sorry, here, there's more to it. Joseph Marshall was found with a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, the Persian poet, lying on his chest. He had penciled, with a cross, the lines... Ah, make the most of what we yet may spend, before we too into the dust descend. Dust under dust, and under dust to lie. Sans wine, sans song, sans singer, and sans end. Ah, my favorite, Quatrain 23. (laughs) 
you're 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 full of crap. I know. All right. Okay, <laughs> okay. Finish the article. All right. Well, anyway, here we go. His brother said that when he was seven, Joseph met with an accident in Singapore, which affected his health, made him averse to society. At age 18, he was sent to France for higher education. After five years there, seemed to have a very strange attitude, quote-unquote, towards life. He composed and published a book of verse entitled, Just You and I, but was extremely discouraged when it was poorly received, his brother said. We as a family were particularly fond of him and he of us. When our father lost a fortune in 1929, George, unknown to any of us, insured his life for a very large sum against motor car accidents, planned to drive over a cliff at the end of a year so that we could collect the money. We discovered his intention in time. Joseph Marshall came to Australia in 1939, lived a life of complete seclusion with books of a philosophical tendency. He later worked for the Prices Commission. Yeah, I had to look that one up, but the Prices Commission was apparently a failed attempt by the UK to control inflation at the time. All right, so continuing with the article, in a letter to one of his friends, said his brother, he described the Prices Commission as being turned into a madhouse at his expense. On January 1st this year, he was an inmate of Heathcote after he had been certified as insane by three doctors following a visit to Bunbury. There he took an overdose of a certain type of pill. It did not take effect, and he then walked to the edge of the sea where he was arrested. He was given intensive insulin treatment, and at the end, the doctor either had to confine him in a mental home or give him the chance of becoming more stabilized. I have no doubt that the death he died was a form that would appeal to him as the finest and noblest way of terminating his life. In my opinion, the bottle of water found beside him would be a sort of cleansing rite. Coroner Cookson found that Joseph Marshall died from poisoning by a compound of barbituric acid willfully administered by himself. Interesting. So in the light of day, this really does look like an easily explained suicide, as evidenced by testimonial from his own family. A possible coincidence of both proximity to Joe's workplace and the Clifton Gardens Hotel, which was very close by, as well as the overwhelming popularity of the Rubaiyat at the time. Uh, keeping in mind, that assessment is based on an article from a tabloid. That's a valid point, but to me, it doesn't feel fishy. Scandalous, yes. Newspaper selling, yes. But not very fishy, though, in the grand scheme of things, at least to me. I mean, the thing that really interests me about this is how quickly, in the absence of information, my own mind wanted to make the leap to something weird happening. That's why we always have to find out as much as we can before we call what we think is going on. I agree. It's going back to just a likely banal exp – well, yeah. not for him. He's, guy, he's committing suicide. Yes, he is. Right. But it does – it really points out how popular the Rubaiyat was at the time. Yes. That's my – yes, a point yeah. I was trying to make. Which you had made earlier. And and it was. It was everywhere. Somebody had mentioned – I don't remember at this point, but it was often a gift given to from people to other people because it's like Shakespeare, a, a short verse that sums up a lot of great ideas in a very poetic way. That's the beauty of poetry is that a few sentences, a few lines, stanzas, can say so much that you're unable to. Yeah, it was a gift at the time for people to like, hey, read this and uh, dwell upon its meaning. It's not that unusual for the time. And if you're not into writing suicide notes it's a, it's a good, or, or short blurb, here's what I meant to say. You leave it on your chest. And this guy obviously, according to his family, he had this intention on his mind for a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's get back to Professor Abbott. 
Uh, by the way, did he weigh in on George Marshall and a possible relationship to Joe? Uh, he did. Here it is. George Marshall died not very far from where Jess had met Alf Boxall in the Clifton Gardens Hotel, which was a pub in Sydney. So that's an interesting geographical correlation there. We have absolutely no evidence that she's connected to George Marshall, but it's intriguing. It's intriguing the location. It's intriguing that he's the only other case of a guy dying on a beach with a rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and happens to be dying in a place where Jess was actually living at the time. So it's a different state than the summer to man, but she happened to be living in both places at the same time, which is rather odd, isn't it? All right, very good then. Well, what did you guys talk about next? Well, you remember the 1978 Inside Story piece on The Summerton Man that Stuart Littlemore hosted? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great show. It's available in three 10-minute parts on YouTube, right? That's where I saw it. Yes, yeah. and, and we have links to it, of course, in the show notes. It has some really amazing moments in it. I had wanted to ask Professor Abbott about it, specifically about this bit, when Littlemore asked Boxall if Joe could have known that he was in military intelligence when she was talking him up at the Clifton Gardens Hotel. Now, we, we can only play the audio for you here, but we encourage you to watch the whole thing so you can see the look on Boxall's face during <laughs> this exchange. Mr. Boxall, you had been working, hadn't you, in an intelligence unit before you met this young woman. Did you talk to her about that at all? No. Was it not done to speak about those things? Well, it was not done to, to speak about any army affair. So she couldn't have known about your involvement with intelligence? Unless someone else told her. Because you see what I'm getting at. There are, There is a theory, isn't there, about this whole affair that the man on the beach was a spy of some kind. Hmm. It's um, <coughs> quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? Well, what did Professor Abbott say when you asked him about it? I'll play it. What do you make of Boxall's reaction in the 1978 piece when Stuart Littlemore, is that right, Stuart? Correct, yeah. When Stuart interviewed him. He's a major court judge now. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. In that documentary from 1978, when he asked Boxall if he had been an intelligence, do we know that Boxall was in intelligence for, right? He confirmed that in, in the interview, right? Not really. I mean, it was very low level stuff. Uh, we did cover this earlier tonight, right? Right. We talked about this. He had been in the second first North Australia observation unit, keeping an eye out for any Japanese invasion that might be unfolding. But that was well before 1945 when he and Joe were hanging out at the Clifton Gardens Hotel. In fact, the unit was completely disbanded by 1945, as we said earlier. After that, Boxall was transferred to the water transport wing, which we also said earlier, which I gather had to do with mobilizing amphibious assault craft and the like. Now, he moved up the ranks quickly there. In fact, he made lieutenant in three months. That was what he was up to when he met Joe. Nevertheless, I'd say there's some debate to how critical the information he may have had was, but that's pure speculation on my part. I'm not really qualified to make that assessment. I suppose he could have known the location of military assets that would have been of interest to a spy, but Japan was already out of the picture as an aggressor. And there's no indication that the Soviets were planning to invade Australia, so why would they need to spy on them, at, at least with regard to the water transport wing? I mean, you know, In fact, the Soviet invasion of Manchukuo in August of 1945, an ultimate defeat of the Japanese forces there, was a major factor in bringing about the end of World War II. 
So if anything, the big concern globally at this time was the development of atomic bombs by anyone and everyone. So that's where the spying comes in. And, and Boxall was not connected to that, as far as anybody knows. <laughs> yes, but I think he was being a little cheeky, though. When it, he wasn't, Didn't he kind of uh, wink, wink, maybe I was? Well, yeah. And that, yeah. You know, that was in that clip that we played. But yeah. it's and like we said, you got to see that to believe it. Yeah, uh, exactly. That, well, that's what we're talking about. So, so he might be being a bit playful here. You know what? This is my other theory, is that when the guy in the break room at Staples tells you he was a secret international assassin, yeah. he's probably not a secret international assassin. Yeah. They don't talk about that kind of thing. Any guy in, in special forces or the, the spy fields never talk about it. No. They got, be wary of the guy who kind of like drops cute little hints there and there that might be the case. So oh, That's a, a little true lies, maybe. Remember that movie? Yes. Bill Paxton. Lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, exactly. And then you find out, well, that, that's the true lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. So at the time, he was hanging out with Joe at the Clifton Gardens. He was in the water transport wing, which may or may not really be considered an intelligence position, right? Yes, that's right. And so Joe gave him the Rubiot at Clifton Gardens shortly before he was set to ship out in 1945. Well, what was uh, Professor Abbott's position on this? I'll let him explain. Here's that section of the interview. You sort of indicated that Boxall had a flair for the dramatic, and you felt like he was playing to the camera when he played up that moment of maybe someone else told her that he was in intelligence. Yeah, he was playing up. Okay, you're just, you're unequivocally, you're just saying that. <laughs> you're stating that clearly. You know, I've interviewed his family, and, you know, they, they've confirmed that's how he was like. And, you know, they've written stuff about him and his life. And uh, he was a guy who had a flair for li- liking a good story. Sure, you know. Yeah, sure. He, he was a he was a bit of a raconteur okay. um, and storyteller. So yeah, that was that was his character t- to be like that. Uh, well, there you go. Do uh, do we buy this? Well, I, Professor Abbott has a well-informed opinion on this. I've obviously never met Boxall, so I can't say, and he's not still alive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> c- could he have had a covert career that we don't know about, one that was classified and still is? Maybe. I mean, being cagey and melodramatic contributes greatly to intentional obfuscation. But, simplest explanation, and based on what we know, it doesn't seem on the surface like Boxall was a high-level intelligence get. I mean, uh, you know, on the other hand, let's say Joe was a spy— or worked for a clandestine organization, could that organization have made a mistake and tapped Boxall out as important? I mean, sure, everyone makes mistakes, but this is all wild speculation. Yeah, you, you really have to connect a lot of dots that are very faint and may not even be there. But yeah, you know, if, if you're looking for the spy thing, I mean, there's only so many combinations you can consider. Like if TSM was an agent himself he had screwed up or did something he needed to be he dealt with dispatched so he either he did it himself he was done away with somebody else did it to him now that's uh, maybe alf uh, or justin you know what i'm saying like th- there's only so many combinations but you really have to reach for any of them i think yeah you, you do know? yeah Okay, so speaking of cagey, what about Paul Lawson, the museum taxidermist that made the bust of TSM? Uh, that guy was straight up withholding in the Littlemore interview, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was. Uh, Professor Abbott and I spoke about it. What's interesting is the other guy that was interviewed on that show, Paul Lawson. Yes. Now, he was cagey on that. Yes, he was. And I've interviewed him, and he's admitted that he was cagey. So he came clean with me. Oh, okay. 
So he really did come clean because he's alive. And the reason why he acted like that on the show is because he really did see somebody who he thought knew the Somerton man, but he was not going to say it on the show and that it was uh, Joe Thompson. It was Joe. Because Joe Thompson was brought to his office. Joe, just for our listeners reminding everybody, this is Joe, a nickname for Jess. This is not a, a man named Joe. This is the same person we're talking about. This is Joe spelled J-O. Alpha E, so it's a girl's name. The police, when they found that her phone number was in the back of the Rubaiyat, the police brought her to Paul Lawson's office to see the plaster bust of the dead man. So when I interviewed Paul Lawson, he came completely clean and he said, yeah, on that Stuart Littlemore video, I didn't feel it was my place to say anything about her at the time, but so many years have passed, she's dead now, so I may as well tell you. And he said that what happened is they brought her to his office. She was very smartly dressed in a very light-colored jacket and skirt. Police directed her towards the bust, which had a cloth over it. And as soon as he lifted the cloth off the bust for her to look at, she refused to look directly at it, and she just stared at the floor for the whole police interview. And the police were asking her questions like, have you seen this guy before? Have you given him a copy of the Rubaiyat? You know, this, that, that. For every question they had, Paul Lawson remembers she just answered in a very monotone way and just either said no or don't know. She never answered yes to anything. And then as soon as the interview was over, she just about turned and walked straight out and avoided eye contact with the bust. So it was very mysterious behavior at the time. And another detail Paul Lawson said is that when she was standing there staring at the floor, her body was swaying. And to him, it looked almost as if she was about to faint. And so he was standing behind her and he actually had his hands out waiting to catch her. Wow. As she was talking. But she never did. She managed to stay standing the whole way, and he never did have to catch her. But that's how it felt. It felt to him that that was happening, so he had his hands ready. That That's fascinating. In his mind, she knew who that was, but he didn't want to say on the show. Well, again, it's the old axiom. You don't believe what people say, you believe what they do and how they react. That's a good point. You know, and the interesting thing about this time was that when Joe was in with Lawson and the police looking at or rather trying not to look at the bust, this was July 26, 1949, her son Robin was already just over two years old. So Professor Abbott and I both are, as we mentioned before, and I think you're on board with this as well, nearly positive that Robin's father was TSM. So, well, you know, you no, know, it seems like there's some vagaries here about when exactly George Thompson and Joe got together and what was the nature of their relationship, but from her reaction, you can see there's emotion there. Yeah, and you know, it, I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm just going to say so I th- I think that kind of rules against a cold-blooded sociopathic serial killer maybe. Yeah. No, obviously this meant this meant something to her. This this struck a chord with her. That's a good that's a good point, you know, and and Joe and George actually got married a little less than a year after this visit to see the bust. So 
I think I think it was May of 1950, and this is part of the reason for Joe's request for anonymity. You look at the big picture here. She's involved with a man she will ultimately marry. She doesn't want to be associated with this strange, scandalous case, and she obviously doesn't want to dredge up old male acquaintances or have them run through the papers like Alfred Boxall. And then she's also dealing with the fact that the Somerton man was most likely the father of her child. And, you know, the whole thing is a huge mess for her, you know, keeping in mind that she got involved with George Thompson just as Robin was being born. And, and she listed George as Robin's dad on his birth certificate, See, even though they both knew that he wasn't. So, In fact, as I was trying to wrap my head around it today, I emailed Professor Abbott just a few hours ago, and I asked him for some clarification on Joe and George's relationship, and, and this was his response. He sent me, he sent me an email. <clears throat> there isn't a straight answer, as you'll see. The situation is this. George, i.e. Prosper, separated from his first wife in 1946 and filed for divorce. His first wife was a stunning beauty. George and Joe didn't get married till 1950. They were chalk and cheese. I love that. I, I don't know what that <laughs> yeah. means. Clearly an Australian expression, but... Well, I, I don't think they go together, oh. right? Is it like nuts I don't know. I've and, certainly not yeah. ever tried to eat chalk with cheese. But. No, the old Simpson joke, nuts and gum together again. So there you um, go. George was 6'2 and quite dashing looking in those days, and Joe was a stubby little person under five feet and not exactly eye candy. But as Paul Lawson once described Joe's beauty, he said she was acceptable. <laughs> well, that's nice. Uh, George was a car salesman. His whole whole life revolved around cars. He didn't appear to have many other interests. Joe, on the other hand, fancied herself as an intellectual. She was a voracious reader and surrounded herself with those sorts of friends. She loved the arts and would visit art galleries and attend the ballet. But George attend the ballet, by the way. But George would not be seen dead in such places. When she invited her friends for dinner, George would either do some gardening or go out. They didn't really socially mix. It seems it was some sort of marriage of convenience. But we can only speculate on how that happened. No one really knows. It's, it seems they were passing ships in the night. Joe and George knew of each other when she was a teenager. And I thought this was super interesting. Mm. No, this is not information that, folks, that you were going to get anywhere else. We have some real inside, like, yeah. brass tacks kind of stuff here. Joe and George knew of each other when she was a teenager. She grew up in a little town called Mentone. George was then a taxi driver there. So the whole town knew George. He was known as... The man who can get you anything. Because if you needed something you couldn't buy in the town, he would pick it up from a big city or another state when doing a long-distance taxi run. In those days, you could get a taxi to take to another state. But from what I've been able to gather, Joe and George did not reconnect until 1947. We don't know exactly when. We don't know the circumstances of their reconnection, but a story Joe used to tell her friends is that she tried to commit suicide by jumping into the sea off a bridge or pier, and it was George that stopped her. If this is true, perhaps he was driving around in his taxi and randomly spotted her climbing up something in a dangerous way and pulled over to stop her. This is just me filling in the dots, but my guess is she was depressed because she was pregnant without a husband. And because of her pregnancy, she was forced to terminate her nursing course before finishing her final exams. I have checked hospital records, and she did not complete her exams at the end of 1946, so went back home to Mentone. And this is something I've read as well in some of the places, a lot, yeah. that she didn't actually finish that. Right. She, she didn't actually become a nurse. She right. was a nursing student. Yes. Yeah. Then it appears that sometime in 1947, we don't know where and when, she changed her surname from Harkness, that was her maiden name, to Thompson. This seems to be a ruse so she could get away with putting George Thompson as the father on the birth certificate. That would be the father of Robin. But they didn't marry until 1950. So that's three years later. Mm-hmm. 
Sometime later, in either quarter one or early quarter two of 1947, George and Joe moved to Adelaide. They made their families believe they were married, although they were not. Joe lived close to Somerton Beach with Robin and just had one address, but it appeared that George used two addresses, the same Somerton address as Joe and also another address in Adelaide. The image they gave to people was that they were already married and living together. But were they? I don't really know. It could be that it was some kind of arrangement and George was living at his other address and was supporting Joe. This would make sense as he was seeing other women. In fact, an old friend of George confirmed in an interview that George saw another woman in 1950 even after he married Joe. I have my doubts that George and Joe's relationship was very intimate, but I can't be sure. Their later marriage was certainly more like two people sharing a house than a marriage. So what's in it for George? Why did he agree to this arrangement? We don't know and can only speculate that he had some kind of need that Joe fulfilled. She provided a son that he could call his own, and she was organized and kept the house well. Perhaps he liked the idea of a stable marriage where he was free to go off and see other women. Perhaps he knew he could not get that in another marriage. So that was the deal, maybe? Joe certainly had a bohemian free love mindset. She had her own lover whilst married, and he lived in Basel, Switzerland, and so Switzerland was one of her favorite holiday destinations. I actually still need to track this guy down in Basel, so need help with that. I guess he's asking you guys knows <laughs> <laughs> how to find that guy. Any, any Swiss listeners? <laughs> yes. Yeah. She grew up in Mentone, which is only an hour's drive away from Monsalvat. Look that up. It will shock you that Monsalvat was like the swinging 1960s 30 years earlier. People lived there communally and didn't know who their genetic parents were. A close friend of Joe's was a mistress of a brother of the founder of Monsalvat. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this guy really has all the information. Yeah, he knows everything. That's the end of the email. But I, I And I did look up Monsalvat, and yeah. let me tell you, it was crazy. So, so that's, a, that's <laughs> it's an artist say, community. Okay, okay. And, there yeah, you go. So yeah. it's it, it kind of their version of a hippie community where it's a free love and, yes. uh, and uh, literature and the arts and this and that. You know, well, that's no, that's if a, you're going to Monsalvat, <laughs> where flowers? There? No, San Francisco, sorry. Uh, I, I see. It's uh, 1 a.m. That's why I'm saying. All right, then. Very well. No, no, you know what's interesting, though, is that, yeah, you ask about what's in it for either of them. Well, for her, sure, here's a stable guy. You know, a woman in uh, in the late 40s, early 50s, who is unmarried is going to have a, a much tougher time. It's pretty common now, of course, but she's going to have a much tougher time getting by. Plus, yeah, she didn't complete her nursing degree. So here's somebody who provides some stability, a home, a father for her child. Uh, there's obvious uh, things in it for her. And for him, I don't know, maybe that the fact if that story was true, I mean, it's an odd story to yeah. tell people and kind of morbid that like, yeah, I was about to commit suicide. This guy comes along and saves me. So yeah, but I, we're you kind know, of indebted. I, I, it's, it's, it's a weird thing to be joking about. I know it true. is, but yeah. part of what I've gathered from Professor Abbott about her personality, and, and it's interesting because the, you know, the, the career that my wife has had is being involved in acting and television and all that kind of sure. thing, you know, and being around creative types, which also I have had as well as an editor of TV commercials, which is a little less glamorous. But still, yeah. I've spent a lot of time with creatives, and I can see the kind of personality – that Joe had, right. you know, sort of creative and intellectual and I think very spiritual in a way and maybe a little bit odd. I think yeah. she was all those things. And when She's you quirky, get to certainly. know her, yeah, yeah, of course, you get to know her, you get to know yeah. this situation. And she went to the, he just said right there, and he didn't even point this out, but he said yeah. in that email that she loved to go to the ballet. Good place to meet Somerton Man. 
Well, there you go. A lot of people think he was a dancer, and we mentioned this in part one, and we'll talk about it more in part three. Right. But Robin was an accomplished professional ballet dancer. Yeah, professional. Yeah, professional ballet dancer. Yeah. Um, No, but what I was going to say, though, is if that story was true, yes, I could see quirky, but it's just a weird, it's a weird thing to tell people. But if it was true, it's true. And he actually did rescue her, talked her down off the ledge. Yeah. And maybe he felt a little responsible for her, like taking care of her. So, but under these conditions, like, you know what, let's have this arrangement. It gets people off my back. I can still kind of swing, you know, and see see other ladies if that's okay with you. Don't say swing. What? Why not? Still swing. Ugh. (laughs) That's the era. That's that's what he's saying. Mushy sinew. Sinew, yes. Sinewy, mushy. How about connective tissue? Does that strike you? No, that doesn't bother me. Again, this is what I think uh, Professor Abbott is saying, is that we don't really know the inner workings. This is interpersonal between them. So there's no obvious thing that we can point to, but obviously they did it. This is the facts that we know. We know when they were married. We know when they moved in together. Yeah. Uh, Well, we actually... We don't really know when they moved Well, in. no, no. You, you know what I'm saying, yeah. though, is that there's family members to talk to who know these people. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. again, there's more of a connection there. Also, during the interview, Professor Abbott pointed out that Joe openly admitted that Robin was not George Thompson's son. Ah. Listen to this. So one of her friends that knew her in an interview said after George died, after his funeral, she said... George did the right thing by raising Robin as his own. So she suddenly came out with that one day. And so it gave the impression that uh, Robin wasn't George's. Of course, the friend didn't have the gut to ask, well, so who is the father then? That would have been an interesting question. But she would have been the sort of person that if you had asked her that, you know, you would have been in the bad books and she wouldn't talk to you ever again. So... The, the friend probably did the right thing by not asking any questions. Well, yeah, obviously I think the picture we're getting here of Joe or Justin is that she is a woman of secrets and you don't, she didn't, she didn't like friends that asked a lot of questions. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and this all just continues to contribute to the idea that Robin was the Somerton man's son. Genetic variations, eyewitness testimonies by Joe's friends. It, it's pretty much sewn up. Well, another pattern here with Joe is that she seems like a person who communicates indirectly with those she's close with, but doesn't, you know, kind of drops hints there, a passage from a book of poetry, yeah. a mention of he did the right thing. Yes. She doesn't come out and say like, well, that's the thing. Oh, yeah, the dead guy on the beach, that's the father. Right. It's like, I think she wants to express herself. But not directly, because, of course, then there's more questions. So she's a very private person and maybe trying to tell people what's really going on, but very indirectly. Yes. And uh, and, and again, as he said, you, you know not to oppress her because you'd be cut off. Or, or as I say, in the bad books. I like yes, that. in the, the bad phrase, on yes. the bad books. Okay. Well, what about DNA? What is the status with all of that? Well, Abbott's been working really hard to get reliable DNA evidence. Interestingly, at some point they were examining the bust that Paul Lawson had made when they noticed some hair caught in the plaster. Ah, DNA. I I I think I actually did see that where they were like, there's hairs here. Yeah. And what's really cool is that in the little YouTube video, you can see them yourself. Yes, you can. And it's, it's not exactly the best place to get specific DNA information, but still they got something out of it. Let me play that section. As we mentioned earlier, we're reasonably concluded that the Somerton man was Robin's father, whatever the circumstances, but that not too long after he was conceived, she was 
in, in some way or another involved with George Thompson. And the question then, I guess, and so now we get down to the, the DNA issues that you've had, and this is something I really want to cover. I specifically want to mention our, that petition because I think our listeners will come to your aid on that to the extent that it can help you. But I, I wanted to know, there was some DNA extracted from hair that was caught in the bust, right? Correct, yeah. But that was not super specific. It gave you information that his maternal line was part of haplogroup H? Yeah, which would be half of Europe uh, would have hair like that. <laughs> it's not very specific, but that's a breakthrough. It shows that we extract DNA from his hair. And so although that was not a very detailed test we did, that was a fairly cheap and quick test, it shows that we've got something there. So this is the next step. We wanted this year do more tests on the guy's hair and see if we can get more detail. And you, But you feel that you'd be able to get better DNA from probably from his, from his teeth if you were able to do an exhumation? Yeah, either from his teeth or from a bone in his inner ear or something like that. This would give us some good information. Also, another thing that would be great information would be a bone isotope test, which can give you location information where you've been and where you were even born, perhaps. Another thing that can be great information are any signs of old injuries in the bones can give you clues to people's identity as well. Where, where are you at in terms of getting the exhumation done? Because I know it's been difficult to convince the government to let it happen. Is that correct? So it's, it's been difficult to get an exhumation approved. I don't think there's any conspiracy to stop me. It's just that, you know, it has to be approved by the Attorney General. He's a busy guy. He's got a lot more important things on his desk than some old case from 1948. And I would probably do the same if I was in his position. I would want to, like, not know about things like this uh, because I'm, I would be very busy and have more important things. And my staff would be trained to try and deflect such requests as much as possible. But I think one has to accept eventually that, you know, a case such as this, although it's not pressingly important as some of today's issues that might be in today's level of politics, it, it nevertheless cuts deep and it is part of society. It's, it's connected to, you know, people's lives here in South Australia and maybe even people in America and, you know, people need to know answers. We need to know what happens, uh, who this guy was. It's part of our history now. And I think it's a historical mystery. And in the same way that we put enormous amounts of efforts into Egyptian pharaohs or uh, different historical bodies that are discovered, this is really becomes part of that history and finding out those things. And, and I think it's reasonable to put resources into those things in the same way that we put into anything else. To that end, I noticed that somebody has started a petition to go forward with the exhumation, uh, which, you, which you had indicated in the AMA, and I've seen it in other places as well. Do you think that the petition has a chance of helping it move forward? Uh, yes, if we get enough people on there, I, you know, I'd like to see 10,000, 20,000 people on there in due course. And I think when we've got those kind of numbers, now that will be the time to make another appeal to the Attorney General.
what I'm going to say right now is that I want our listeners to go and sign this petition because we want to find out what is going on with this case. And I can also say that we've been on the air, as it were, for a podcast about just shy of two years, and it is the number one most requested story that we have been asked to do via email. We've received since we started about 500 emails. And there's a lot of people have been asking about it. And we have a lot of listeners in Australia, actually. The bulk of our listeners are in the United States. But after the U.S., Australia is the close runner-up, that and Scotland. We have some fans in Scotland. But they're all interested in it. So this is what I want to say here in this show as, as you guys are downloading it. I actually made a shortened URL for the petition, and it's bit.do slash summerton. So http colon backslash backslash bit dot do slash summerton s-o-m-e-r-t-o-n and last time i looked at it, i think it had about two thousand signatures on it i think we can probably double that if we really try so let's let's get out there everybody go to that we're going to have the link in the show notes and let's get it signed so we can help professor abbott take the next step with this investigation that'll be great well, I think here's something that's easy to do. It's pretty noncommittal, but, you know, we're always asking about like, well, we're going to have to live with the question here. There's not going to be any answers. Well, here's something you can do to maybe get an answer. That's right. And DNA could go a really long way towards getting to the bottom of this. And right now there's only been, because I can track them when I make that short URL. Yeah. There's only been 87 clicks on that link that we did, although I think it's picked up about 1,000 signatures since I first looked at it, but I'm not sure about that. But I know you guys are out there. This is your chance to help the world get to the bottom of this case. I mean, regardless of the story behind how he died, the Somerton man deserves to be identified. Uh, I'm sorry. uh, I've been watching that OJ thing, and I I think I just changed Johnny Cochran there for a minute. Well, it's a good little poem, though. Yeah, he had more of a feel for the touch of that. But uh, Abbott is looking for ten ten to twenty thousand signatures there. Right now, there's only three thousand. So we're counting on you guys. Just remember this: bit.do slash Somerton s o m e r t o n. Yes, again, bit.do slash Somerton. All right, well, this episode is about to be done, but we want to remind you guys of ways you might be able to help solve this case. And if not this case, the next petition I want, I want the little alien dug up that's buried in Marfa, Texas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in the cemetery, they, they which they also... Re- no, they, they also removed the gravestone. They removed the gravestone, too. Well, there was an episode I saw of UFO hunters where they think they found the spot. Again, Can't get it's the authorities wouldn't let them dig. So here's yeah, something... It's the only reason anybody goes to Marfa. <laughs> well, yeah. It was kind of I didn't say that. No, no, no angry yeah, emails. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure the barbecue is awesome. But, but that's what you always hear. No... Permission denied for exhumation, permission denied for this, permission denied to research any further. Here's your chance to turn that around. Yes, exactly. So what can they do? Well, number one, what can be found out about the laundry marks? We have photos of them on our website. Does anyone have any information about them or any information about New York cop Adam Yolch's legendary collection of laundry marks? Number two, can anyone find a copy of a Whitcomb and Tombs version of Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam on bleached white paper. And three, please, you guys, come on. Sign the petition to have the Summerton man exhumed. bit.do slash Summerton, S-O-M-E-R-T-O-N. If you can help out with any of that stuff, email us at astonishinglegends at gmail.com. 
All right. So before we close out this particular episode, we just want to remind you that we'll be back in about two weeks with our take on all the primary theories revolving around this case. We have exclusive access to a fascinating Freedom of Information Act document from the United States, as well as some information that casts an interesting light on the possibility of Joe being intrigued with euthanasia. So come back for the last part of the series to get the lowdown on all that. Right now, we're going to leave you with one last little piece of information from Professor Abbott that might blow your minds. I know it did mine. All right, let's hear it. I guess the last thing I want to ask you about is, and it, it's some information that's that's come forward more recently, but that in the course of this investigation, you have become somewhat close with the descendants of Robin Thompson and therefore the Somerton man. Is that correct? Uh, yes. During the course of the investigation, I obviously interviewed lots of relatives and people that knew Joe Thompson and George Thompson to try and get an idea of the history of the time and what went on, et cetera, et cetera, and, and see if any light could be shed. And, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things that one didn't intend for it to happen, but um, uh, I fell in love with Robin's daughter and we got married. So that's kind of one of those weird things. And so we have three kids now, and so, so yeah, in a sense – Finding the origin of the Summerton Man is now become also has a personal dimension because my kids will grow up one day wanting to know where their great grandfather came from, and hopefully by then I'll be able to give them an answer. that's going to wrap it up for tonight's episode. We'll be back in about two weeks with our final show for this series on the theories surrounding this case. Our theme music was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps and our lead researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.